You're listening to a sermon from the series, Born This Day, an FFC Christmas series in Luke chapter 2. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. This morning my goal is to kind of walk us through this one word, Savior. I will take a few questions at some point, so if you have some, feel free to text them in. We'll make some application and we'll leave, Lord willing, uh, with a deeper understanding of, of the Savior aspect Um, that is mentioned here in Luke 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 1, follow along with me. The Bible says, uh, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. The word Caesar there in that culture meant Lord. There was a sense of divinity that was described to the rulers. They looked to these people as their deliverers, their hope. So a lot is in that than just as you might think of your president. It's a whole different ballgame in that culture. And they demanded worship. They would uh, just a lot to that. And this is who was ruling, Caesar Augustus. And the whole world came to be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered. They did what they were told to do, each to his own town. Joseph, in, in fact, he went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David. So there's the region. Here's the city. It's called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David. He went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So a a couple is making a trip, and she's pregnant, and she's going to a place that's crowded. It's no doubt inconvenient. All this is kind of in play here. And so if you're a young couple, even if you're an older couple, you remember back, but can you imagine this scenario? You're pregnant. It's crowded. Transportation is not like in, you know, the suburban, Okay. I mean, there's just a lot to this that I think sometimes we forget in just a casual reading. This was just primed for stress. Could a young mom say amen to that? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? This situation is just laden with difficulty. But wouldn't we agree that it is in those kind of times that God does his best work, doesn't he? Look at verse 6. While they were there in this crowded registration required event they had to go to, while they were there, The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a feeding trough And because there was no place for them in the end. I mean, that verse alone tells you just how stressful it probably was, how crowded, how difficult. Things just weren't working out as we thought they would. But God knew what he was doing, and he was bringing to earth the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, Emmanuel. Verse 8 says that in this same time frame, when she gave birth in this stable and laid him in a feeding trough, in that same region as this was happening, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. So it's nighttime. They're doing their job. It's pretty calm probably. And then suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared to them. That would be pretty stark already, right? Just an angel appears to you in the night while you're shepherding. I mean, like, sheep aren't, like, the most exciting job going, okay? So it's probably pretty routine, pretty casual, and boom, an angel appears. And then the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with what? Great fear. You would have been filled with great fear as well, so cut the shepherd some slack, okay? I mean, this is just uh, exactly what... We would have done as well. But the angel says, fear not. 
In other words, don't be filled with fear, for behold, I bring you not bad news, but I bring you good news. In fact, it's good news of great joy. The phrasing there, in other words, it's a resulting kind of good news. It's so good that you're going to have great joy. And here's why this good news brings great joy for all the people. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, say it with me, a Savior. Wow, so that's the good news that fills me with great joy, that a Savior is born this day. And he is, say it with me, Christ the Lord. So here we have some titles to the baby, to the firstborn son mentioned in verse 7. It's a, he's a Savior. He's Christ. He's the Lord. Verse 12, this will be the sign for you. You'll find a baby. So he's a baby. He's a baby Savior. He's a baby Christ. He's a baby Lord. Just think about these things. That baby was the Savior. It was Christ. It was the Lord. He was the Lord. So there's different titles to this baby born that day. This will be a sign for you'll find this baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. These 14 verses describe for us in probably what I think is the most common Christmas story known in most churches, Luke chapter 2. And they tell us about the birth of Jesus the baby and they give us various angles to who he was. He was a savior, he was the Christ and he's the Lord, he's her firstborn son. If you move on in chapter 2 you'll find in verse 16 that Jesus called a baby again. In verse 17 he's called a child And then in verse 21, for the first time in this chapter at least, he's referred to after day 8 with the name Jesus. So we're going to talk about all these over the month of December. Today we're going to focus in on the word Savior. What does it mean to say that born that day was a Savior? Well, let's be captain of the obvious. It would mean at least that he would do what? Save. Okay, great. We're we're on the right track here. Exactly. Exactly. Because that's what saviors do. They save. Think of the word rescue. Here's the best historical and biblical word, though, to describe our Savior in in, in the sense of his, like what he does, his role. It's the word deliverer. Okay? And I'll think I'll, I'll make a strong case today to show you that the Jews... This is precisely and exactly what they were expecting and waiting for, deliverance. So when they heard, unto you is born this day a Savior, you know what they heard? Finally, deliverance. I mean, these Romans, man, we need deliverance. Their oppression from the past and all those memories, years of exile, years of captivity. What they knew in their mind were, was this idea that, you know, We're waiting for a deliverer from all of our enemies. We're waiting for someone to rescue us, a savior. In fact, the Lexham figurative language encyclopedia, I'm not sure the exact title, but there's a big book. It's put up by Lexham, and it it basically takes doctrines and concepts and associates words with them that are most seen in the Bible. It says that when it comes to the word salvation and savior, the most biblical and 
best word to describe the concept is the picture of a deliverer. And so we're going to talk this morning about this angle of a deliverer was born that day. And here's what we're going to see. I'll just go ahead and give you the take-home truth up front. I hope you'll see this laid out and played out in, in just clear fashion. But read this with me, would you? We'll see that Jesus is our ultimate deliverer. God's only means of salvation for our souls and bodies from the torment of death and hell. We're going to see that this morning as we understand more about what it means that Jesus was born that day as our Savior. Now, I want to do two things first. I want to look backwards. I want to look left for a little bit of Luke. I'll come back in a minute and we'll look forwards or we'll look right of Luke, okay? I'm not speaking left and right politically, so relax. I'm just speaking in terms of direction. Let's look to the Old Testament for a bit. Is the idea of a deliverer, the idea of deliverance, is that really hold true? Is that, is that seen in the thread of the Bible? Well, here's some verses. Take a snapshot of this. I'm not going to spend long here. This is really uh, key passages about Jesus as our deliverer as we look to the Old Testament. For instance, even in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah's prophecy in verses 67 through 75, you can look at them right now. Much of that is about how God now had sent someone to deliver us from our enemies. You can read those verses, his prophecy. It, it has a sense of like, man, we've been kind of oppressed, and now here's the one who's going to rescue us. In Luke chapter 1, verse 51 through 55, here's Mary's, um, uh, I think it's Mary's prayer as well. Yes, her song of praise. She uses phrases like this. He has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud. He's brought down the mighty. Do you sense the idea of deliverance? You go to Matthew 1. Where the angel said to Joseph that you will call him Jesus. And then watch this phrase now. For he will what? Save his people from their sins. So they were expecting Jesus to do something. What was he going to do? He was going to save them, rescue them, deliver them. Specifically from their sins, no doubt. Let's keep going left, can we? Isaiah 61. It's a prophecy about Isaiah's ministry. But it's also a messianic prophecy describing what Christ would do, and one of the phrases in here is this phrase that he would preach liberty to the captives. That's an idea of deliverance. Someone's in bondage, Jesus will set them free. Isaiah 9, 1, verses 6 and 7, here's the famous chapter in the prophecy about how a son will be given, a child will be born, the government's upon his shoulders. You know those verses. But in verse 1, he kind of prefaces all that by saying that it's gloomy, And yet a great light has shone. So what he's saying is, man, it's not the best of days, but someone's coming who'll deliver you from this. You see the theme, the idea of deliverance as they look towards the Savior. 2 Samuel 22 is more of a narrative about David. And yet in this narrative, the historical narrative, you'll find that he actually began to write these psalms. And one of the words that David uses often in describing the coming Messiah, his Lord, is the word deliverer. Often he'll say, the Lord is my strong tower. He'll say, the Lord is my rock. The Lord is my deliverer. So David, you know, one of the uh, types of of Christ, um, the best earthly king the Jews ever had, he, he described the Lord as a deliverer, as one who would save them. Judges 3, again, we're backing up to some types here. Uh, Israel here, this is pre kingdom area, uh, era, excuse me, pre-kingdom era, 
And they had judges who would rule them and, and deliver them. In fact, Judges 3, 9, and 15 talk about a deliverer God raised up. All this was, again, I think designed to get the, the children of Israel, the Jews, uh, kind of ready, anticipating that, okay, these are physical deliverers, but they're temporary. They're um, short-term at best, but there is an eventual ultimate deliverer on the way who will do more than free us from the Philistines. He'll do more than take us away from the Ammonites. He's going to deliver us and free us from our sins. This is what God is building. This is what he's promising. I go back to what I think is the greatest picture of deliverance in the Old Testament is Exodus and the Passover. Here, in fact, in Exodus 3, when God is speaking to Moses, he actually uses the word deliver. He says, Moses, I'm calling you. I want you to go to Egypt. I want you to deliver my people. You could easily translate that. I want you to save the people. Rescue the people. Well, the events happen. They uh, are freed. Chapter 13 is the actual installation of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And you know that in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they're called to remember their deliverance from Egypt. Chapter 15 is the Song of Moses. In fact, let me just read you the common refrain in this Song of Moses that looks back to God's deliverance from Egypt. Here's what refrain is used in this song over and over. It's Exodus chapter 15. I will get to it. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So you had this somewhat of a military kind of conquering idea, idea that the Lord has come to deliver his people. So all through the Old Testament, these are just some select passages. As we look left of Luke 2, what we find is deliverance is a consistent, expected theme. They were waiting on one. Would this hold true as we look to the right of Luke 2? Did Jesus fulfill that? Is is that what continued to be true of Jesus? That he was a deliverer? Well, here's what the Bible says about that word, about our Savior and his deliverance from Luke 2 forward. Luke 4 is Jesus Christ actually speaking of his ministry. And guess what Luke 4 is? Luke 4 is a recitation of Isaiah 61 in which Jesus said of himself, I am come to preach Liberty to the captives. I mean, let's just be honest, guys. That sounds like a bondage deliverance issue to me, don't you? That's why Jesus came. Acts 4.12, Acts 5.31, 13.23. These are words in which the word Savior is used to describe, as Acts 4.12 says, the only one able to actually save people. In fact, Peter says in Acts 4.12 that there is no other name under heaven given among men that can save us except for the name of Jesus. So he associates Jesus, who was born, Luke 2, called a Savior with the fact that he's the only one who can actually deliver us. He says that in 531, 13, 23 as well. So Peter is, is really kind of boarding the ship that, hey, this Jesus who was born, that I walked with him and saw him die and, and come back to life from the grave, yeah, he's the only one who can really deliver. Romans eleven twenty six 26 speaks of Christ's deliverance of the nation of Israel in the future. 2 Timothy 4 is Paul affirming that God would deliver him 
not only in the present tense, he said, but he'll, he'll bring me safely to his kingdom. So Paul has a sense in which Jesus has the physical aspect of delivery, but also this spiritual component as well. Paul saw Jesus clearly as a deliverer. Colossians 1.13, the word is used in the past tense. Speaking of Christ, it says, he delivered us. Whereas in 1 Thessalonians, it's used in the present tense. He is delivering us. Now, we'll say more about this in a minute, but it's exciting news to think that the, the delivering work of our Savior isn't something that we just say, oh, it happened in the past. I filled a card out, said a prayer, I'm good to go. I'll say more in a minute. But he delivered, he is delivering. Revelation 6 shows us how he will deliver ultimately in the future. Here's when the wrath of God is revealed from heaven in a final climactic event. And it says right before this, though, that he gathers his people, his children, and we're not under that wrath. Aren't you thankful that that he delivers us? And that when he comes in judgment on the world, guess what? If you are in Christ, he will first of all deliver you. And why it doesn't matter to me the timing of that. I'm just thankful of the fact of it. Amen? You see, from, from, from Genesis to Revelation, the Savior is the one who delivers. So when you read Luke 2, let's go back there, okay? When you read Luke 2, and you read, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Here's what you're actually saying historically, biblically. That unto you is born this day in the city of David a final, ultimate deliverer, a rescuer. That's what saviors do. That's why this chapter is, is an epic description of deliverance. I mean, we see it as a Christmas story, sure, as a baby born, but it's actually the, the, the epic, the pinnacle passage of deliverance. It's God's inaugural act of revealing to us in physical form and historical facts who the deliverer actually is. In fact, can we just examine a couple more verses more closely? Let's look at verses 10 and 11. Here's really the heartbeat, the meat of these first 14 verses. The angel said to them, fear not, I bring you good news. You see, when there's a deliverer who has arrived, it's good news. It's not bad news, amen, church? Now, this is the word from which we gather our word gospel. It's the word euangelion. It just means that, that we have some great news, some good news. It's the gospel. It's the fact that Christ has come. Notice in this text, and I'm going to be a little bit, I'm going to poke at you a bit here, but this is not something proposed. Now, I think through the implications of this. The gospel isn't proposed. In other words, that's why I, I struggle sometimes with saying, would you invite Jesus into your heart? As if his kingship is contingent upon your permission. Like, whoever thought of that, right? The gospel wasn't like, hey, by the way, if you guys are okay, shepherds, if you're good with this, Jesus has come, and if you can approve that, we can move on with the show. The gospel is never proposed. The gospel is always proclaimed. Which is why, throughout the New Testament, men are called to repent. I think I know the heartbeat of someone who says, I ask you to invite Christ to your heart. I get that, okay? But let's be sure that we don't hedge on watering down what actually happened in Luke 2. God's ultimate deliverer had arrived. That's great news, and it was proclaimed. God's kingdom is here. 
It was good news. It would result in great joy. The phrase there is that of a resulting type of of, uh, good news. So people would have great joy. And here's why that good news results in great joy. Because born that day was a Savior. So do you see how this is just so climactic? It's so magnificent. In fact, I like how this ends. It says that on the heels of this angel announcing this good news, then other angels joined in. And you know what they didn't? They didn't praise the men or the shepherds. They praised God. Now, there is a, a physical, I'll say a, a horizontal benefit to this passage. Peace on earth among those with whom God is pleased. Uh, it says here that um, good news of great joy for all the people. So there's no doubt it has a horizontal effect. But I think what's interesting here is that the, the climactic primary result is that God was glorified. Are you, are you catching this, church? Now, listen very carefully as I say this to you. It makes me think that Christmas really isn't all about you or me. And for, forgive this Risky transparency here. It really is about Jesus bringing glory to God. Sometimes it's all about Jesus just in the manger. Oh, that's it. Okay, we're done. But really, the whole event was designed to bring glory to God. That out of his gracious, merciful character, he would move on behalf of lost people. That's why this is the inaugural act of God revealing to mankind who the historical, physical deliverer would be it would be a baby who would grow and become a sacrificial lamb who would save us from our sins glory to God you see had Jesus not come had God not moved on your behalf and sent the second person of the trinity to live as us and yet as God, you would still be looking for a deliverer. But thankfully, unto you is born this day in the city of David a what? A what? Deliverer, a savior, a rescuer. And so when you look left of Luke 2, when you look right of Luke 2, When you look at Luke 2, what do you find? That the Jesus who was born as our Savior is the ultimate deliverer of both our bodies and souls from the torments of death and hell. Can we show that one more time? Here's kind of that statement again. I want you to kind of see this, all right? We'll kind of say it together, make sure you're clear with it. Uh, We we were past that one. Sorry about that. We'll move on to our take-home truth, can we? Here it is. Say this with me, would you? He's our ultimate deliverer, God's only means of salvation for our souls and bodies from the torment of death and hell. And this is what Jesus is, is depicted in Luke 2 and is affirmed on both sides of Luke in both the Old and New Testaments. Now, I want to take a minute and unpack a little bit more about the word deliverance, about what Jesus does as our rescuer, as our savior. Here's why. Because I thought this week and, and, and some weeks past, why spend extra time unpacking this specific angle of Jesus as our Savior, as our Deliverer? Why do that? Here's why. Because I believe, and I think Scripture bears this out, 
that the deeper your appreciation of your deliverance, the deeper your praise to God. You can word that however you want. You can say that the more you understand about the gospel, the more you'll worship the Lord. The more you're forgiven, the more you'll love. You can say it however you want. But I'm convinced that within the American church, the Ankeny church, First Family Church, our inability at times to worship rightly, I'm not speaking there of certain physical movements only, postures, I'm not speaking of that only. I'm speaking of an unashamed ability to praise God for his redemptive work in your life. When, what, when you think, well, everybody's watching, people will wonder what I, who cares? God has delivered you. And when we understand more about that, I think it frees us appropriately to worship him in a deeper, more authentic, and I would say at times even more visible way. I told the worship team this morning, I tend to think when we understand what deliverance really means and what happened, we're not afraid to put that on display. I have nothing to be ashamed of. God has rescued me. He has saved me. We want the world to know that. So can I explain a little bit about deliverance to you, scripturally, theologically? Let's see if this can sink down in your soul like just some good hearty chunks of steak and see if we can get some good nutrition from this, okay? I think deliverance in the Bible is three-tenths and three-fold. Say it with me, three and three. Here's what I mean. And, and you can substitute deliverance and salvation. You can use both words interchangeably here. We have been delivered, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. You see, this is why a minute ago I said that, you know, being saved, being delivered, isn't just like, oh yeah, when I was seven I signed a card, when I was 12 I said a prayer, and I kind of got that out of the way. Like, what's with that? We get that out of the way? No, that's where life begins. Are you with me? So let's understand, what really happens when we're saved? This is a con- it's this, it's this past tense final verdict, and yet it's this present tense power, and yet it's this future tense glorious hope. Yes, it's all of those. Let me show you Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved, right? You have been delivered. Nothing short. God's not waiting in, in one sense. He's not got more to do. Christ said it is finished. You are fully saved. And yet, in one sense, you are being saved. Here's 1 Corinthians 1.18. That as the message of the cross is preached, it's folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It's the power of God. In other words, the gospel, the cross, the good news of Luke 2.10, not only saves you, but it empowers you to live like you are actually saved. Does that make sense, guys? One frees us from the penalty of sin. We'll never be condemned. One frees us from the power of sin. Why is it, church? I'm going to pause here for a minute. Why is it that you can say no to those sexual immoral cravings? Why is it you can say yes 
to sacrificing for your wife like Christ did the church or for respecting and loving your husband like Christ did the father and submitting to his will. Why can you respect your parents and obey them? Why can you not be exasperated with your kids? Why can you discipline them effectively but not in the room? What makes all this possible? Why aren't aren't we just sinfully and wickedly living like pagans? It's because of the power, the saving power of God in the very present. That sin will not penalize you one day in hell, but it holds no power over you now either. And see, a lot of us live like that leash is still on our neck, don't we? And when Satan jerks it, we have to go. But I bring you great news. I bring you the gospel that Jesus Christ has died and rose again and has freed his people from the power of sin. So you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. Here's Romans 5, 9. Look at this verse. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved. In other words, there's this future sense in which when Christ comes in judgment, which is what his visible bodily return will be, one of judgment, it will not include his people. We'll be what? Saved. Delivered. So salvation is past, present, and future in all of its glory, all of its beautiful ways. God works on our behalf in all aspects of time, past, present, and future. He has forgiven your sin. Man, amen, church. Those mounds of sin, those piles of sin you're thinking of right now, God has forgiven every one of them in Christ. Hallelujah. The devil will not hold those against you and take you to hell one day. Jesus has forgiven you. He's delivered you from its penalty. He is saving you so you have power over those very sins. And one day we'll be freed from the very presence of sin. Salvation's glorious, isn't it? This is what God has done for us. But it's not only three tenths. And by the way, these tenses, I think, are referenced by the Apostle Paul in an interesting conversation with Felix. Can I show you this, this quick verse, Acts 24, 25? I tend to think this is Paul perhaps thinking of these three tenses. Now, he may not have worded it like we just did. He would do much better than we would do. Um, but in this conversation with Felix, I think he talks about, he says he reasoned about righteousness. I think that's the idea of, of Christ uh, imputing to us his righteousness and our standing before God. And then he talks about self-control. I think that's Paul deliberating and perhaps reasoning with Felix about the power he has now to not live selfishly and sinfully. And then the coming judgment, that idea of the future wrath of God. I think in one sense, Paul here talked to Felix about the past tense of salvation, the present tense of salvation, deliverance, and the future tense. So salvation is not just three-tensed. Deliverance isn't just three-tensed. It's also threefold. Now, you may not have been fully aware of this, but listen very carefully. This is some ground I want to make sure I walk on correctly, but yet boldly. God just doesn't save your souls only. Again, it goes back to this mentality that some of you think, well, I I signed a card, said a prayer, I kind of got that done. My soul's good to go. My body, who knows? My spirit, it'll probably never get saved. 
I mean, you know, I'm just this depraved, terrible person. I'll never be any better, but at least I've got a ticket to heaven. You know, I'll be a, I'll float around one day up there. And our theology is so screwed up in those ways. You know that God saves every single part of you. Did you know that? And he's going to keep every single part of you and make it blameless when he comes. He'll do this individually. He'll do this corporately as a church. He's washing the church to make her spotless for the day he comes. But here's how Paul talks about it to Christians. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, that I pray that the God of peace would sanctify you completely and that your whole spirit, soul, and body would be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, God's not going to sanctify what he hasn't already saved. Can we just agree on that? So what we see here is the deliverance of God in its, in its fullest picture is the sanctifying, the completely delivering work of God in three areas of your life. Your spirit, which I think would probably refer here to like your, your emotions, your mind. Kind of how someone would say, well, that's just, that's just lawn. And they would describe lawn. That's kind of what I would see here as spirit. It's probably not the capital S, Holy Spirit. It's just his, this, who Lon is, his intellect, his emotions, his will. The soul would be that spiritual aspect of you. And some of these things, by the way, they're kind of up for debate, so it's not like these are doctrines we're going to fight over. But I see the soul here as that part of Lon that needs regenerated, that needs brought back to life, resurrected. And then this body is, well, we see Lon. We know Lon. So what you, what you see when you look at Lon is you see the tent he's wearing and so how he acts and behaves and thinks and speaks, that's what you know him as. The real lawn is inside that tent. You with me? The real lawn is his spirit and soul. You just know him as lawn because of what you see. And so, well, it's Lon Monahan. Do you know that every bit of Lon Monahan has been and will be delivered by the saving, glorious work of Jesus Christ? His spirit? I think this probably refers mainly, in my sense, not only to the future day in which there'll be a perfect uh, existence in heaven, but even to the current tense present where he doesn't have to give in to the old ways of thinking, the old draws of his flesh, uh, the old emotions. Why? Because the power of God to save him in the current But his soul has been saved. I think that refers just to a past tense type of transaction, justification, regeneration that carries through, obviously. But then this body, one day, if he doesn't die, the world will come back. He'll get rid of that body. He'll give you a new one, a glorified body. Every part of Lon, at some point, watch this, will be redeemed. Body, soul, and spirit. You won't think wrongly anymore. Christy's glad about that. You know, you'll have a brand new mind. Your emotions won't run away with you. There's power now over that, but it's not perfect. We have those moments, don't we? But one day, you won't even have a moment. You'll be sanctified completely, delivered totally from this battle inside. You see, I think the Spirit refers to who you are. Then God gives you His Spirit when He regenerates your soul. And so you have this battling weapon, right? The two spirits wage war. But there's a day coming when we'll shed this tent, we'll shed this body, there'll be no more battle, we'll be with Christ in the glorious uh, fullness of our salvation. So here's what I'm saying to you guys, that's the deliverance that's talked about in the Bible. It's way more rich 
and broad and deeper than, oh yeah, I, I kind of said a prayer and I think I'm, I've checked that off my list. Now I've got the salvation bucket list thing done. Can I say to you that there, the mentality of this ticket to heaven thing, man, it just eats away at a real gospel-centered existence in which we see that Christ has delivered us, is delivering us, and will deliver us. And that every single part of our existence, body, soul, and spirit, is and will be delivered. Think about this. No other deliverer can do that. This is one of the reasons that Jesus in his ministry did all three of these. He healed people physically. Think about this now, church. He healed people physically, showing I'm ruler over the body. I can deliver the body from illness, sickness. He didn't always do it. He doesn't always do it now. But can he? Yes. He's a deliverer. He delivered people from their emotional, um, and I'm not sure the right word to use here, but you know, there are situations where there was an insane person, a, de- a demoniac, uh, other situations, and, and God showed power to deliver them from that. Not every time, but he had the power. He was a deliverer of the, of the spirit, of the body, and for sure he forgave sins, amen? Often the, all three of these were combined in some of the epistles, in some of the instances in Mark. Here's what I'm saying. No other deliverer can do that. And they were expecting in Luke 2 a Caesar to come and deliver them politically or militarily. Jesus does something far greater, far deeper, far better. Jesus delivers every single part of you from every aspect of your time. Your past, present, future, your body, soul, and spirit. God has saved it all. That's why he's the ultimate deliverer. That's who was born that day. In the city of David. A savior. A deliverer. Before I wrap things up with this one simple application. Let me see if you have any questions. None were texted in today. Let me tell you why this is the message you needed to hear today. And it's not my message in the sense that I preach this well. There's many other good messages on deliverance than this one. But let me just explain why the message of deliverance, the theme of deliverance, is the message you need to hear. And, if I can be this bold, it's the message everyone on the planet needs to hear. This is the fundamental bedrock message every ear needs to hear. That the ultimate deliverer has come. You know why? Because that's what everybody wants. Let's just call it what it is, church. Everybody's looking for a way out of something. Is that too honest? The guy's in a bad marriage. It's like, man, something's got to change. And you can just kind of hear him or hear her, can't you? They try this or that. Why do they try all those things? Why? Watch this. Why do they divorce? Because everybody's looking for a way out of something. Debt. And we spend like crazy, but everybody complains about debt. Why? Because we're looking for a way out of something. Why do folks love the lottery? Because they can get out of work. So they think at least. I mean, just, just, it could be something, you know, 
not even necessarily biblical, just something that's neutral. It could be something really important, this eternal consequences. But I think there's a spectrum that describes the human existence. We are deliverophiliacs. Every one of you. Everyone on the planet. You know what we are? We're deliverophiliacs. You say, Todd, I've never heard that word. You're right. I didn't hear it till last week. A friend of mine, we were talking about this, and he said, Todd, we're just deliverophiliacs. In other words, we have a strong affinity for deliverance, don't we? We want a way out of something. Now, you see that word, you're thinking, oh, I'm not sure I like the word philia or philia. That has some negative. Actually, it doesn't. You're thinking of some words right now that have a negative, wicked, terrible connotation. But actually, the word philia or philiac is just a neutral suffix. For instance, you know that I'm a logophiliac? Say, oh, Todd, is that something you want to share in public? It actually is, you know. A logophiliac just means a lover of words. I like to play with words. I like to make up words. I'm going to write a dictionary one day, hopefully. Just, I love words, okay? Um, bibliophiliac is someone who loves what? Books, actually. Just a lover of books. They see an old bookstore, they're going to pull off and they're going to go. They'll spend hours there like, can we just get on with a trip, please? No, I'm a bibliophiliac. Didn't you know that? Who knows what an ergophiliac is? Who has someone who has ergophilia? Well, there's a, we have a, a much simpler word for this in our culture. A workaholic. And that sounds kind of, you know, no one wants to admit to that. But you, you don't own this title. <clears throat> I'm an ergophiliac. Kind of sounds intellectual, kind of classy. It just means you're a workaholic. You're a lover of work. Like, go home, man, okay? <laughs> Who knows what an ichthophiliac, ichthyophiliac is? It's a lover of, if you 830 here, don't answer. Yeah, I'll, do, I'll play charades. You ready? Yeah. And ichthyophiliac is a lover of fish. You see, philia and philiacs aren't all bad. And I agree with my friend. I think every person on the planet is a deliverophiliac. We want out of our mess. Now, I'm going to put the cards on the table here pretty bluntly. If debt was your only mess, if a difficult marriage was your only mess, if a strained child relationship, if a terrible work situation only messed, you could count yourself blessed. Because the real mess you need to deal with is the one brought about by your sin. Because that one has eternal consequences, church. And until you look to the ultimate deliverer to do exactly what he was born to do, save you from your sins. You may have a good marriage, a good job, a nice family, and still die in your sins and go to hell. Which is why the work of Jesus on our behalf is far greater than just something here on this earth. He saves both our bodies and our souls. He does save every part of us, yes, from every aspect of time, yes. But all of that is rooted in what he came to do. Born as a baby, lived a perfect life as God among us and gave his life as a sacrificial substitution for the penalty of sin. And now all who look to Jesus in faith and believe he was who he said he was, the Son of God, and that he did what he said he would do, die for the sins of the world, God said, I will save you by grace through faith. I will deliver you 
by grace through faith. And since we're all deliverophiliacs, this is why it's good news. <laughs> this is why it brings great joy because finally the deliverophiliacs have hope. I know most of you in this room, and from what you've told me, you're a born-again believer. You have trusted Christ. Can I just encourage you not to root that action in your past only? Watch this. Continue trusting Jesus for power in the present to live with power over sin by his Holy Spirit and look forward to what he's going to do one day when he ultimately and finally saves you. Please, discard the ticket to heaven mentality and realize that salvation is actually what you do on this earth as well. It's how you live. It's Christ empowering you in the present for the future because of the past. That's how great a deliverer he is. So if you're born again, if you're a genuine believer, please, there's more to your life than just this one second in which you kind of took care of business and you're on with your life. Man, God has moved in and taken up residence in your life. Everything is different in the present too. But if you're here and you're not a believer, would you this morning believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Say, Todd, why Jesus? Because he's the ultimate deliverer. He's the only one who can do deliverance for body, soul, and spirit, both past, present, and future. No other deliverer can. So you may take your shot at a counselor, a self-help book, or a be-better philosophy, but they will fail you in the end. Jesus never will. And when you just simply say, God, save me through the work of Jesus, I believe who Jesus was and what he did. I place whatever faith you've given me into the work of Jesus. God, save me by grace through faith. And God will do exactly that. And you'll be delivered from the worst thing that could happen to you. Eternal punishment for your sin. Isn't salvation glorious? Isn't salvation beautiful? So what do you say, church, in light of the one who was born that day, our Savior. Let's come and adore him, can we? Let's worship him now for his marvelous, exquisite act of deliverance on our behalf. Let's pray.